Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast. I'm your co-host, Sean Mader, and today with us, our other co-host, Chuck Rude. Hello, Chuck. Hello. And we're really excited to have a friend of mine here today who I've been itching to get on the podcast. We've got with us Dan Davis. Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? Great to be here. Great. And th- you're uh, in a stopover in New York, so you made time out to, to come and I see did us. on this steamy day in New York. Yes, yeah, oh, yeah. so uh, let's all be grateful for air conditioning right now. So, Dan, you are a, a, you wear many hats. I do. I do. First, why don't you just give everybody a little sense of who you are, what you do, and we're going to jump into some fun stories that we were telling over, or, over cocktails a few months back. Sure, sure. I usually describe myself as a recovering engineer, recovering lawyer, recovering corporate finance MBA who uh, is kind of using all those tools as best I can at this point in my life. So um, some friends of mine adaptly uh, bought me a T-shirt that says seriously overeducated, which is fairly <laughs> apt. Can you tell my father is a principal of schools? You know, when I grew up, right, education is uh, deeply ingrained in kind of what makes me me and, and how I've gotten to where I am. But more than the education is the experience. And we'll get in that as we kind of move forward. But uh, generally, I've spent 30 years in the communications infrastructure um, field that sounds very technical. I basically build the internet, and the internet, as complex as it might sound, it's a series of giant data centers that are connected by fiber across the planet. That's the internet, and that's basically where I spent 30 years of my life, kind of building, buying, operating, selling, um, building teams around it, building companies around it, and um, have kind of come full circle from startup to global back into the startup world. So. And the conversation we were having was a lot of people might just think about the internet, all the infrastructure, all the backbone is the highly technical part where innovation is needed. And that's not your perspective at all. I think as um, there's certainly a level of innovation on the user experience side, what happens on the phone and the app that you see. Um, from my perspective, what where I can move the needle is actually making that internet available to more people across the planet. Um, and I've done work, you know, kind of across the planet, multiple continents. Usually when we think about, you know, reaching that next billion users, we think about China, we think about um, Asia, Latin America. For me, where I've spent a lot of my time is here in North America, you know, in the United States. And as we were building out the original Internet 1.0 in the 90s, building fiber and the equivalent of data centers back then, you know, we basically built around a lot of rural parts of America. And that's kind of part of what I'm trying to solve for. I don't say it's kind of a tonnage for my own sense of being Mm -hmm. part of the way things turned out, but... um, Well, and say more about that, because that that kind of gets into our further, our future conversation about... Mm -hmm the way you look at creating value and how you're engaging your employees and how you're leading your teams and where you even look for for your solutions. So if you wouldn't mind just uh, expanding on that a little bit. Um, So when you look at the problem with rural broadband in America, 
Um, it's, it's essentially, you're in a market, a small market in the middle of America, and you don't know it, but the, usually the problem that you can't get good broadband is you're too far from the internet backbone. The internet backbone is generally hundreds of miles apart from one route to another, and if you're in a small market, it's very expensive to get that bandwidth that you want back to the backbone. It's just a matter of geography, geology, and the way we built the internet. You asked the question kind of what, how, what does innovation mean to me and what I mean, what I'm doing, and it's about kind of bringing that backbone closer to the small markets, lower the cost of rural broadband access, and you know, kind of that's what the piece that I feel like I can move the needle on. As far as kind of innovation above that, so that's, you know, requires hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, all of which is spent every day. Nobody sees it happen. You might get stopped in traffic because there's a piece of construction equipment and it's putting something in the ground. You don't know it's actually building a new backbone route, right? That's usually people's experience in, they don't even know that it's happening in front of them, but it is happening. That's kind of one level is that physical level of innovation. We talked a little bit about kind of the software level, which is at the app level and what happens inside the data center. But all that really kind of comes from you know, innovation in the individual and the team and in the company. And for me, when I describe what I do, we usually spend a lot of time talking about that technical thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, kind of truckloads of explosive blowing up rock and building big trenches and, you know, all that kind of stuff that's, if you like big machines, it's a good space to be in. To me, that's not the hardest part of what we do. The hardest part of what we do is building highly performing teams. Um, and that's very much like um, watching my husband cook. Um, me, when I cook, <laughs> I look at the recipe and it's a quarter cup of this and a teaspoon of that and I'm very precise and that's an engineer lawyer in me, right? And everything has to be kind of leveled off and precise. And I watch my husband cook and he grabs a little of this and he tastes it and a little of that. That's actually more how you build a team. It's not, okay, I've got a finance guy, I've got a legal guy and I've got, you know, kind mm -hmm. of an introvert and an extrovert. There are so many interrelations when you get to four or more people on a team, so many more inter the way people interact, they affect each other and the feedback level. It's almost like kind of how my husband cooks. You kind of do it, see how the team performs, tweak it, and yeah. then you know, see what change that makes. But that requires a lot of, um, I think, of experience with people, knowing yourself, um, and at the same time keeping your eye on the ball of what the team is supposed to be actually accomplishing. And that's, that's actually a lot. That's a long list of things to make mm -hmm. all work together. But again, when the meal's done, it tastes great. You just don't understand kind of that kind of analog, non-digital way that... Yeah, it's never going to get captured yeah. on yeah. the recipe. Right, right. Because there is no recipe. It's intuitive. Yeah. And how do, you, how do you capture that intuition of, mm, it's a little bit too salty, but actually, or it's too salty. I actually can't take the salt out. I'll put more sweet in there, and that'll cover the salt. It's not intuitive, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it is to be building a team, you know, building an individual, building a team, building a company. It's, it's intuition born of experience. Um, and that's what kind of creates the success. And I think we'll probably spend some time talking about trying to figure that out, right? How can people, yeah. you know, it's great when you see it happen. You know it works well when you see it happen. Nobody is really born there. How did they get there? They're in, that's the hard question. Well, I, I think, Chuck, you and I talk about that. Turn this up. You and I talk about that quite a bit. Is there's always a, a, a 
a desire to want to capture something or do the right thing or read the right book that's got the right steps to follow. Yeah. And yet most of the work we do is the interpersonal part, recontextualizing the, mm -hmm. the, the issue. So as we get into this conversation, uh, people will probably want to know uh, one of the things that you are known for is you brought high-speed connectivity to the Navajo Nation. We're in the middle of that right now. Yeah, and that's something that nobody had had success with for quite some time, mm -hmm. and it really found itself smack dab in the middle of no man's land, quite literally. figuratively mm -hmm. and literally. So right. um, I thought that would be one great example to kind of navigate how did that technical sensibility mix with that personal sensibility and where did you really have to have your attention trained and where were you looking from such that you were able to navigate some of the challenges and we'll get into some of those challenges in a little yeah. bit too. Great question. Um, I think at the base, if you look at how do you solve the really hard problems, I think it's identifying what the real problem is. There's so many red herrings of problems. You're like, for example, when the Navajo Nation, the way that project came about was the Navajo Nation had uh, an electric uh, power plant, a coal-fired power plant, 2.2 gigawatts, largest west of the Mississippi, which closing down after 40 years and was going to leave for the Navajo Nation a fairly large hole in their economy. Um, and so that the Navajo Nation came to someone who's a member of our team now and said, can we turn this power plant into a data center, right? Because one thing that data centers need a lot of is power, right? They are giant power hogs. So you will have a couple of million square feet consuming 300 megawatts to a gigawatt of electricity. So very concentrated consumer of electricity. So there's giant power lines, you know, into a data center. So building those power lines is very expensive, takes seven to 10 years. You don't just drop a data center in and say, can you drop, you know, these series of 300-foot towers for 600 miles to this location. It doesn't happen. So one of the hard part about data center is going where the power is. So, so somebody, naturally they thought that, well, thought, that's a natural turn thing. Turn the electrons got that around, already, right? So let's just do that. Turn the electrons around. Rather than going from the power station out, let's take advantage of all this power infrastructure to put something that consumes a lot of power on that same location. Like every other problem, you're like, well, that's a, you know, that's a great problem if that's what you identify the core problem is, is it needs more power lines. Well, when they brought, the, brought it to me, um, having done a lot of kind of fiber construction and data center construction, I said, well, you know, the power is great. That's a great start. But, you know, it also needs to be connected to the Internet itself for the data to go somewhere. And so when I plotted it on a map and looked at where the backbones were that we all built 20 years ago, it was 600 miles away from the backbones. So I told my team, I said, well, that's a, you got a great idea for a warehouse here because a data center without a fiber network connected is a warehouse. And it's kind of a running joke on our team now. But the point is, you've, you're like, great, I'm gonna, you know, I've got all these power lines. I've solved the data center problem. Okay, that's one problem. That's not all the problems. You've got to understand all the things a data center needs. All, the problem is, and is it really a data center that they want? That's how the problem came to you. How do we put a data center there? Well, we just unpacked, actually, it's not a data center problem. I need to get the fiber network first before I build the data center. That's one way to look at it. The other way to slice and dice, okay, why do you want a data center? Well, we, we obviously have this economic, you know, there's 
household income on Navajo Nation is under 12,000 a year. We have 46% unemployment. Wow, that's actually, that's the core problem you're solving sure. for. It's not a data center problem, it's not a network problem, it's an economic development problem. Yep. Okay, so you've now zoomed out just through a few questions. Why are they in front of you? What's the real problem they're solving for? Um, so it, it, I think it's a decent way to, you know, of how this pro, you know, how we identify the real problem here is economic development. Their playbook was put a data center and I can't do that without doing the fiber. Well, if we're gonna do the fiber and the data center, data centers consume a lot of power. I know our large content company, cloud companies are very green conscious. So when you put a data center in, you don't wanna just you know, consume a lot of electricity in the power lines. You want, you know, they, they want a green story. They need a green story. They're socially responsible corporations and individuals. They wanna do solar power. Can we do solar power there? Actually, yes. Actually, when we ask that, they're saying, actually, Arizona is one of the best places on the planet to do solar power. Wow. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting, mm -hmm. right? And so all these puzzle pieces, just if you just start asking questions beyond the technical of what, what the problem really is, what the opportunities really are. Um, this would have typically been a situation that you walked away from had it right. just been technically unfeasible. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, that would have been the normal? That's what everyone's done to, up until now. They said, well, there's no fiber. Let's stop there. We can't build fiber. That would, that's kind of what's happened up until this point. You're like, well, actually, I happen to have built, bought, or sold three or 400,000 route miles across the planet. I know a little bit about that. I'm at a point in my life where I like solving really hard problems, um, and this is a really hard problem, and that's really why I engaged. And I said, if there's somebody that has a skill, you know, can build a team around this, you know, I'm at least a part of that team. I think that's the important part that you bring up is that you, you dove deeper into, like any consultant, and even employee within an organization, people come to you with a perceived problem, but really it's not the problem. Mm -hmm. It's, it's you know, in this case, I have some resources I'd like to turn into, reuse into a revenue flow. Mm -hmm. But really that's not the, the underlying problem. So let's address the underlying problem and we can create a more holistic solution that not only solves that, but maybe far exceeds just utilizing those resources you once might have had absolutely and i think you know and so that maybe this is a good point to kind of tie back into um looking at building those teams is how did you build those teams you had a vision you drove down into mm -hmm. a uh, root, root cause root issue and now you're going to build a team so you have a vision of what you want to do based on a root problem now how did you look at building that team around it yeah, yeah. So you could, um, you know, building a data center is, you know, requires a lot of money. You'll spend a typical cloud company data center for the biggest two or three will be a $600 million to $1 billion project, probably two or three billion by the time you actually put the computers inside of it. So it's a giant capital problem, but, you know, it's physically not that hard, at least in my world where we build subsea cables from London to New York. I mean, that's hard, mm -hmm. um, that physically hard. Um, here, the hard, you could look at the hard part of, okay, how do I get cable in the ground where if I stand in the middle of Northern Arizona, I look to my left, right, forwards and backwards, I see nothing but flat red rock and you want something in the ground, mm -hmm. which means you're going to have to have some very big expensive machines to put something in the ground. You're gonna need a lot of permits. You're gonna have a lot of ecological questions, archeological 
questions to overcome, you could say, well, that's the really, really hard part. And it, you know, you can kind of get distracted by that being the hard part. But okay, that's what I want to do. I, I actually, there are people, you know, com whole companies, multi-billion-dollar companies, that get paid to do this. That's actually not that hard. That's plug and play. That's plug and yeah. play. I mean, what they do is hard, but as far as me problem solving that problem, I know who to hire to do that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the real hard part about this is getting the right to put it in the ground. The real estate rights that are required to put the fiber in the ground. You can't just go put something in the ground in somebody's backyard. You have kind of common law, real estate law that you know requires you to get property owner consent, right? So you want to build you know fiber from Denver to you know kind of Phoenix, and that's 800 plus miles. And you need uninterrupted rights to get the fiber from one point to another. Think about it this way. It's like it's like a chain, right? A chain is very, very strong end to end. You take any one link out of the middle and the chain is useless. When you think about putting real estate rights together for fiber, it's the same thing. If you've got one, point, one foot where you don't have the real estate rights and can't put the fiber in the ground, the entire cable is unusual it, because the, the signal doesn't get from one end to another. Okay, so now we know actually it's a real estate problem. It's, it's how do I get the right to put it in the ground? Okay, so step back from that. Who has the right to say yes and no, right? The landowner. I'm standing on Navajo Nation land, right? Okay, so I need to get something done with Navajo Nation. What's that history? Well, there's a fair amount of distrust for obvious reasons amongst the Indian tribes with, you know, kind of, kind of folks that, you know, uh, outside of their nation. Who can say yes, right? Who can say no? Okay, now I'm feeling like I'm getting closer to the really hard problem. You know, we tried to build across tribal territories kind of 20 years ago, um, and, you know, we were, you know, kind of given an answer that was really more reflective of distrust than couldn't work out the economics. Um, we had tried to do deals with some tribal nations in the past and just kind of lost focus, didn't really understand the problem. We didn't get into immediate yes, so we literally built around these locations. That's why Navajo Nation's never been built through. People just said, this is hard, I'm moving on. Yeah. So, okay, so now I know from the Navajo Nation I need a yes. How do I get them to yes? I gotta give them an interest. I could pay them a lot of money. Certainly that's one way to solve a problem. But how do I give them an actual stake in the outcome to say, I want this to happen? What's, the, what's their core economic problem? What did we talk about earlier? It's an economic development problem. What do we know about the current economy? It's a digital economy. You have to be connected to the internet. What do we also now know? They're not connected to the internet. The nearest backbone is 600 miles away. All right, now think about this. Now I know their real problem is economic development. If we take as fact that they need to be connected to the internet to really grow going forward in the current economy, I actually now, by asking them for the fiber and saying, I'm going to give you serve, I'm not gonna just get through your territory, I'm gonna actually put some off ramps off of the internet backbone while I'm going through. Now I'm solving a core problem for the person who can say yes to the hardest problem that I've identified here. That's just, it's a good example of just kind of just yeah. keep peeling it back. What's the real problem? What's the real problem? Now I get to the real problem. I'm trying to understand you. I want you to say yes. What do you really care about? We've identified what somebody really cares about. And oh, by the way, actually the thing that I'm asking you to do will actually solve that problem. It's just seeing those connections. Now that's something that 
you've had different experiences with other people that you've worked with throughout the years. Not everybody around you has had that sensibility. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say that's true. People get stuck at, it's, you know, there's no, you know, I want a data center, no fiber, I'm stuck. I want fiber, you know, the, the Navajo Nation, you know, kind of the distrust. I've got to work off hundreds of years of distrust, so you get stuck there. It's really kind of backing up. To me, it's like pieces of the puzzle were at that moment in time on the table in front of me. I didn't put them there, but I was able to back up enough to see this piece is over in this upper right corner of the table. The piece that connects to that's in the lower left corner. You just had to back up enough to see the whole table rather than the space on the table in front of you to see that they can fit together and solve the problem. Well, then that gets to a conversation that you and I have all the time is there seems to be a, per a perception widespread that having your company exist for a higher purpose other than mm -hmm. profit is, I mean, it sounds nice, but is it really pragmatic and practical? But you and other leaders that you work with, that's the source of their effectiveness, right. is having more than just profit at stake. It actually becomes the reason you see things that other people are missing. Exactly. I mean, from my experience, so I you know, grew up in you know, rural America in a little town called Pleasant Plains, Illinois, 654 people when I was growing up. And uh, you know, this was back in the 70s. And um, it was an idyllic life, so we walked to school. My father was the principal, you know, was, you know, picket fences and all those things that, you know, you kind of read about in books, I suppose, at this point. And I remember going back um, maybe about a decade ago, right before we started a family, and I, I was excited to take my husband back there and show him where I grew up, right? And I remember driving into town, and um, it is not where I grew up. It does not look like the places I grew up. There are a few of the structures still left, the school, and the, but there was nothing going on. The, the few companies that were there when I grew up, the fertilizer company that was started by my best friend's dad, is gone. It's moved to the big city because for various reasons. There was just it was it just felt like this um, abandoned kind of decaying. Um, town and it was eye-opening to me and I I didn't really understand you know kind of how that happened um, and so I've kind of got that as a backdrop of what can happen to you know what rural America looks like when it's not really positioned for the future and their future is a digital future connected to the internet whether you like it or not and that's where a lot of the economic activity is occurring and so I have that kind of what I grew up with and here what it became. So being a problem solver by nature, you know, to me that's a piece where I feel like I can make a difference. I can take the pleasant plains of the world and leapfrog them forward in technology and economy and solve the problem doing the arcane thing that I do, which is building fiber and data centers. It doesn't really necessarily feel like there's a solution there, but it's understanding the core problem, which is economic development, understanding the state of the economy, that being connected to the digital world is important, and I actually happen to know how to do that. So, so it might, um, just by coincidence, I walked into the wrong door in here, and I entered my own internet provider, which is housed downstairs from where we are right now. Yep. And uh, yeah. I've got my feelings about that. Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> And I also worked with another telecom company that actually 
uh, is primarily set up in rural America. And we've gone and uh, spoken to businesses in middle America who, I remember there was a, a, a lumber company that literally had to have four different dial-up networks mm -hmm. that went out a few miles to the closest patch that they could find, but we're still running a full lumber yard off of dial-up mm -hmm. in 2017. And when you get that, oh, people's ability to continue to live their life in a smaller town is really dependent upon this infrastructure, that changes the entire focus, the entire messaging, the entire employee engagement mission around people who would be working for one of those companies. And I know um, you faced part of this in even building your own team mm -hmm. because uh, you can say more about it, but there was a requirement that you had a certain mm -hmm. level of experience on your team, but a lot of these guys were people who might not share your same vision. What were some of the other aspects you were dealing with that you had to deal with so that you could actually fulfill in this big vision? Yeah. So in, in what we do, um, which is you know, kind of building these things that have never been built before across mountains and through rivers and all the, you know, building the things that were too hard to build the first time, um, there's a lot of judgment involved. And I wanted people on the team who had kind of been there, done that before. It's hard enough um, physically what you do. I needed a team that... Um, had been there the first time with me when we built the internet, felt an obligation to do it differently this time, um, could understand that we kind of unwittingly created some of the rural, and if not most of the rural and tribal broadband, just totally unwittingly. Nobody really knew we were doing this, but that was kind of the outcome. Um, so I wanted a team, a kid around it, that, um, you know, everybody, to get on the team after I had either be bald or have gray hair. And, and the point is, I want experienced people here who I don't, you know, kind of, at least my senior leadership team that's kind of been there, done that. How do I get those people, right? I'm a startup. I'm not sitting here on $100 million and can write giant checks to get these people who are coming out of jobs making a lot of money. How do I attract them? Um, how do I get them passionate? Because what we're going to do is really hard and you need that passion to carry you through the really hard times. If I looked at what we were doing, you know, we're building through places that weren't built before. We're inherently going to solve the rural broad, tribal broadband problem for those areas we go before. Now, actually, we have a purpose. And here's the interesting part about this weaves together. As I mentioned, the hardest part about building long-haul fiber like this is getting the real estate rights and getting people to yes. So how do I get these communities to tolerate us as we you know, kind of disrupt their lives for, you know, a short period of time and shut down highways and, you know, those kind of things to build this. They inherently know it's good, you know, if you explain what it is, but somebody really needs to make them understand as a person who can say yes, why this is important to them. Now we're getting to what the purpose of the company is. As a business purpose, this is a very financially sound business model. But that doesn't necessarily solve my problem of getting people to yes who I need them to say yes, whether it's the right-of-way provider saying yes or it's the team member I want and he or she has retired and I know they're the top of their game they can do this for me. How do I get them to yes? 
and you step back and you say, well, kind of reflect on yourself. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this really hard thing right now? And uh, as a later in life dad, children four and six years old, you want to do something you're proud of when you describe it to them. That's what motivated me to do this, that purpose of I can make an incredibly highly scaled business, which makes a lot of money for my stakeholders, which means I can attract the capital to do this because these routes cost hundreds of millions to build. So that's what motivates me, that I can actually do the same thing I've done for 30 years. I can do it with a purpose this time beyond just money. That's what motivates me. And what I found was when I go to people and recruit them and say, you know, Bob, I'm, you don't have to do anything you haven't done for 30 years. You're going to be in your comfort zone of the thing you've done. You're coming out of corporate America. Maybe you're happy about it. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're happy with your outcome. You get to do your thing. You get to do it in a, you know, in a vibrant startup environment, and, but you get to actually do, do it for a purpose you care about. That's the key. So let's talk a little about, again, that purpose is solving the rural and tribal broadband problem. Now, it's something that gets the team members I want. As we talked about with kind of the Navajo Nation or all the rural towns I need cooperation to build through, I actually am solving a problem that's important to them, which is economic development. So the purpose isn't just a nice to have. What's happened here is the purpose has become the, the solution for the hardest problem we have, which is getting the rights of way we need and getting the team we need. And it's just a matter of seeing how to weave that together into a story that people care about. Exactly. I think that you talked about using have several different tools on your belt and when to pull them out, when not to. But um, I think the core of what you're doing is the tool belts of is storytelling. Yeah. It's really it's storytelling. You 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 have a common goal that you can build on a purpose that's higher than just financials. Sure. But it is good for financials. Absolutely. And and then weaving that story to make sure it, it, it drives through everything you do and every decision and how you build teams to what, how you get people on board and get people to say yes um, right through your final product. Yeah. I, it, actually, 24 hours ago, I was sitting with a, a, one of our potential investors, multi-billion dollar investor, global investor. They invest hundreds of millions of dollars in this space. And they had some of our materials actually sitting on the table in front of us, and they pointed to the bottom of this one page here, and it said, social impact. We're investors. Help us understand. Are you here to make money, or are you here just to solve a social problem? And I had to understand how to tell the story to him. Mm -hmm. right? The story for him is social impact is important because it solves my hard business problem, which is what creates value for you as a shareholder. Because his job, don't think poorly of him, his job is to make money for his investors. That is his job. He's not being a bad guy. He's right, asking the right question. To your point, you tell the story, it's the same story, but it's a slightly different ordering, a slightly different emphasis. I don't talk, when I'm talking to the, the rural communities, I talk a lot about solving the rural and tribal broadband problem, right? Because that's why they get to yes. When I explain the function of our purpose, the social impact for our investors, I have to make that extra connection. Yes, it's, this is the social impact of what we're doing. But by the way, it solves the hard, 
business problem that makes everybody money and allows us to create value where nobody else was. It's the same story. You're just mm -hmm. making an extra connection for people. Well, you know, one of the intentions of this podcast is that we're giving people the access to, well, how do I actually apply that into my day-to-day -day work? And one of the tools that we use is empathy mapping or journey mapping so that the, the conversation you and I have had is rather than thinking simply about the business model, having this ongoing understanding of the stakeholder community. Now, in this particular situation, there's a whole bunch of stakeholders and there's a narrative for each one of those stakeholders. So when we talk about salespeople and their job when they actually are going out, or in your case where you have this multifarious set of uh, problems to solve, being able to actually empathize and actually get the user journey of the person involved and how you can actually impact that, the, the narrative quality starts to emerge naturally. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we do exercise where we map it out and we put it up on the board and you mm -hmm. get to really visually see that these are real people in real situations, but the story that has to be told, you're right. The investor may or may not care about the this legacy. But get, their job is to care about making money. That is their job. They're not mm -hmm. bad people. And we right? can make that wrong because sometimes. You know what? Behind that investor, you know what you know who his investors are? Pensions. Yeah. People who in their 70s, 80s, 90s are, are depending on him to make sure he doesn't lose his money and makes money for them. Now when you understand actually who he is and why he's doing what he's doing, you feel a little different, don't you? And he has his own social impact to make. Exactly. Yeah. But I've got to admit, the question to you is to ask what the person is sitting in front of me, what do they really care about? Right? Keep peeling back until you can really understand what they really care about. For the Navajo, it wasn't the data center, it wasn't the fiber. Second, I'm going to keep peeling it back, asking, what do they really care about? What's the problem they're trying to really solve? And sometimes you actually have to define it for them. Yep. Sure. Yeah. And well, that's some part of what you've done with uh, business model mapping and, and all of that is, which is literally with a blank canvas, how can you start to answer some of these questions? Yeah. And I think what's super interesting is that your value add and the way you tell your story, which is, is a skill in its own self but is you're, you're showing two different sides of the same coin, but mm -hmm. you're using the value proposition within that, talking about bringing broadband connection to rural and tribal lands um, is the value add Absolutely. to both, both conversations, making money and getting it implemented. Yep. And it's just the small tweaks around it. It's the same story, like you said, same story, different lens, but that adding that purpose and really finding if you have a core purpose to your organization that you can leverage and, and use it as the, the focal point of how you get to the answer for both mm -hmm. is even more of a powerful story and is probably why it shows the success you've done Thank and you. achieved. I'd say when you're trying to figure out what your purpose is, is you know, if you, I don't know, if you're trying to define the purpose of your organization, you really got to think about it in the terms of what's the business problem you're solving and define your purpose in a way that's authentic to solving a core business problem you have. Mm -hmm. You can't just say making the world a better place. Well, you can say yeah. a world a better place, <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't, it won't feel authentic to your employees and, and all the other stakeholders. Make that purpose relevant for your stakeholders, each individual stakeholder, right? For those who are investors, help them understand how that purpose kind of logically one leads to another and it makes more money 
right? Yeah. I, or, you know, if you're an employee, you know, kind of, this is something you can care about. You're helping other human beings. You know, if you're dealing with reasonably empathetic people, that will resonate with them. And that will get that individual employee or that individual leader that kind of discretionary effort. We talk about discretionary effort a lot when we're talking about motivating people that will, you know, kind of go that extra mile for the company, for the job, for the company, but really if they understand if I do this for the company, I do this for my customers, you know, it really kind of furthers this purpose that resonates with me that may be kind of beyond the initial the customer that you're actually serving. So it's 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 the purpose has to be authentic to you. It has to be authentic to the business. It has to have a connection to the business. It can't be just let's go out and do good. No, if it's Pollyanna, it's gonna fall flat soon right. and if you manage to trick people for a few weeks that's mm -hmm. about it in your case you actually did take people who probably are more familiar with the boardroom and took them out into the field yeah. and you had some pretty interesting uh interactions and stories and, and people that you're dealing with i'm curious to to know how did that impact when you took your people out into the field to actually really get to know the customer in this case mm -hmm. How did that alter their sense of self in doing work that, like you say, they've been doing for 30 years, yeah. but suddenly this is probably the first time they may have encountered a situation like this? Yeah. I mean, you can go to my hometown of Pleasant Plains, Illinois, and see something's gone wrong. You can go on Navajo Nation and get a sense for you know the level of energy and economic activity there. You can talk about it. You can talk about 46% unemployment. You can talk about you know, household incomes. But unless you're there and standing in the middle of it and looking around and spending days there, it doesn't really, it's just academic until you're there on the ground and looking around and seeing, you know, kind of where, where these, you know, where these very proud people are. Um, you know, the backdrop to this is understanding a little bit about our, how they ended up there. Um, I don't want to get kind of too, too deep into that, but, but, you know, there's some kind of accountability there, accountability issues there. Um, but it is really important when new team members come on board to literally go on these lands, whether it's rural America or tribal America, and see what's going on and more importantly, what's not going on. Because most of my folks, all of my folks live in major cities, not surprising. But to actually get out there and spend some meaningful period of time and not just stop at the gas station and fill up and move on, but actually spend time on the ground and try to connect with what's really going on and not going on there economically, that's when you can see the change happen with folks. You can tell them about it, and some people are convinced by the numbers, but it doesn't last as if in the same way that if you go on the ground and see the difference you can make if you're successful, now you're really motivating your people. Now you really are connecting the purpose to the thing that I'm asking them to do every day. And are there any examples of people where they were really su quite surprised, where you actually noticed a marked difference when they returned back to the workplace, how they were connecting with their work? Yeah, I, I, people, um, I usually ask them for when they come back from the first time, you know, kind of on the ground there, you know, kind of, okay, how was that experience? You don't do it in a team meeting in a, in a group setting, mm -hmm. you know, you connect with them and say, you know, tell me about, you know, how did that go on? It might start with a conversation around, okay, how did you find a way to build through this area and this rock or across this dam? You know, okay, well, where'd you have dinner? You know, how did that go? Where'd you eat? You know, you try mm -hmm. to get into that kind of the human um, experience they had versus the work experience they had um, and hear them 
kind of connect um, in their mind the purpose to what you're asking them to do. And they come back energized and, and they understand. If they didn't before, they'll understand the difference they can make. And it's not a question of pity. It's not a question of feeling sorry. It's about empowering you as an individual. You can actually move the needle yeah. for, on this. And it's not out of pity, it's out of opportunity. So when we, I think one of the important things here is when we go into the, some of these communities, you don't go in and stand up and say, I'm here to help. That comes from a place that means, um, I don't think it's very respectful. Mm-hmm. None of these people, it doesn't matter where they are, rural America, travel America, they don't need my help. They've gotten to where they are and they're, you know, they're quite successful in their own right. I walk in and say, look, here's an opportunity. Let me explain how I think this opportunity, you know, could be meaningful to you. Sometimes it, I'm wrong, right? And you try to self-adjust from there. But you go in and you offer an opportunity for forward movement, for success for them that they don't have now, and say, look, I'm going to otherwise do this. I would love to come through your town. Um, but And here's an opportunity if we can find a way to work together. That's, again, I'm not there to help. I'm there to present an opportunity. And some people will take it. So far, everyone has. Eventually, we'll find folks that don't. And that's fine. You have to respect that decision as well. It's not your decision. It's theirs. And it's walking in there with that humility Mm -hmm. and just offering an opportunity. And that's, yeah, I think that's a key piece of the culture that I'm trying to create here, you know? Well, and we, we, if we talk it down to what it really is, it's empathy. And it's one of those things that, it's ephemeral, and yet it is distinct when it's there. It is the difference between companies who are operating from simply a business model, and it either fits or doesn't, or you can actually have the sensibility to see these pathways that other people missed in the right. 20 or so years that people have been trying to build in this area. And I mean, I know you personally were dealing quite closely with some of the leaders in the community, mm-hmm. and uh, that was its own adventure in and of itself. And some really amazing people who, I mean, they really were looking for the opportunity to provide for their people. Mm-hmm. They're very, um, I, I think when, if you look at wh- whether it's Pleasant Plains, Illinois, or what was going on in Navajo Nation, um, and I didn't talk to the leaders in Pleasant Plains, but I did in Navajo Nation. And, uh, and one of the things that came across is there was a generation of leaders coming um, coming into their own there. And they realized that we're losing it. We will lose this generation if we don't solve this broadband problem, right? Everybody stays connected through social media, Facebook and Instagram, and I don't need to go through it. But that remaining connected to everybody else in the outside world through the digital world is, it is the expectation. So they have you know, they're teenagers that, you know, kind of leave the reservation and or leave rural America and go off to college and they get this great Facebook experience or Instagram or Netflix and they can mm-hmm. do what they want, where they want, when they want, right? And that's that on-demand expectation. If you go to some place that, you know, is sharing a gig for tens of thousands of people, you're not going to have that experience. So if you're that individual teenager, are you going to go back and contribute to that economy or not? So that's what we were hearing. They're like, we, are, we will lose this generation if we don't solve this problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're on the ground and you don't understand how the Internet works, you're just like, I, I actually think I understand the problem. I have no idea 
how to actually solve it. And that's, it's just serendipity that they had the foresight to actually ask the question and say, can we solve, can we put a data center here? That just in and of itself, that realization of those leaders that a data center could help was, it started the whole thing and it leapfrogged the whole thing forward. That wasn't us. That was some, that was a leader on the ground there having the foresight to ask that question. And that's where it come to the, the idea of multidisciplinary collaboration comes in. Again, that was an idea that was not going to come to fruition through a typical business model lens. Right. It would just been an incompatible match. Right. But um, what would you say for anybody listening who's now looking like, well, how do I develop that sensibility? Mm -hmm. how, how do you, some of what we're doing is we're trying to break down a little bit of yep. the magic or kind of the special ingredient. But for anybody out there who's looking to develop that quality, what advice would you give them? Yeah. Um, experiential education, and not in the terms of a school, but in the terms of putting yourself in new uncomfortable situations. The more uncomfortable it is, here's a good rule of thumb. If something feels like it's going to be really uncomfortable for you, you're probably going to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. But your instinct is, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. I need to pull away from that. Right, so you've got to adjust. You know, it's like uh, the first time I went parachuting. It's, I mean, your body is screaming, "Don't jump out of the airplane!" I don't know anybody that's made a first jump and it was natural, right? But you know, you've got to just kind of make that jump. And the fact that your body—you know—if you're not in mortal danger, you're like uncomfortable that you're going to take this job, and somebody else has faith you can do it. What if you just believe them and take that job? And can it be painful? Yes. Will you? Will you fail a little bit? Yes, but will you learn? There's the important part. So how do you get that perspective? It's having a lot of different varied experiences and experiences come with failure and discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I don't wanna say lean into it, but understand actually, it's almost counterintuitive. If it feels really uncomfortable for you, it's probably a good opportunity to learn. Um, we've talked about kind of the tool in the tool belt. Um, it's you know, through those experiences and, and through education, you, you want to have as many tools in your tool belt as you can, right? Because if you look at just what we've done, and it's not just me, we've got a lot of multidisciplinary people on the team. That's why they're valuable, right? They know how to build, you know, my head of construction, she knows how to build fiber. She kind of worked, put, you know, kind of fiber in along the railroads in Mexico. So she's a very capable woman. But she's also, you know, was an executive coach. So you've got this incredibly capable woman who does this really hard thing, mm -hmm. but has this incredible empathy and emotional intelligence. And it's that, you're not born with that. You, you learn that kind of multidisciplinary, um, you know, you put all those tools in your tool belt purposefully. They don't just, the screwdriver doesn't fall in your tool belt, right? You gotta get it in the loop. And the loop that holds the screwdriver probably doesn't hold the wrench. You've got to be very purposeful in giving yourself that experience, giving yourself that education that you know is not intuitive. Um, I do a lot of the coaching of students. I do some teaching at um, Washington University in St. Louis in the Executive MBA student program, um, and I also do work in the daytime MBA program from time to time. And so, run into students who you kind of coach from sometimes formally and informally, and. You know, if you're thinking about kind of how do you get that next job, everybody works on their resume, and the resume is important, and, you know, I could give all kinds of advice on that. That's not what today is about. But the question is, you know, how do you stand out, right? Like every 
kind of senior executive in a sized company, you've looked at thousands of resumes and you've got a few seconds to make a difference. How do you stand out from the crowd? And a lot of times you stand out from the crowd by putting the non-intuitive thing in front of the decision maker, right? I mean, I remember the first time I did one of my resumes, um, I, I put parachuting on there, mm -hmm. right? And I can't tell you how many times that was the discussion <laughs> about me, despite having, you know, all this education and experience, and they're like, or, or parapenting, which is jumping off the edge of a cliff with a parachute that's already open behind you, okay. right? which is, again, one of the most non-intuitive non <laughs> things you'll do. Yeah, you know, and the, believe it or not, the parachute does open. Um, at least it did so far. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's distinguishing yourself. Um, if you're looking for the job or looking for that promotion, how do you distinguish yourself? Don't just, there, there is value in saying, okay, this person got this promotion. This is what they did. I should do that. Certainly you can learn from that. But if you're trying to stand out from a crowd amongst with today's ability to garner thousands of resumes for every job, your real job is how do you stand out from all those people that are doing that? We have a lot of conversations and, and part of what we've been talking about is the future of work mm -hmm. and the, the current workforce is not going to be holding down jobs that are uh, holding down the same job the way they did 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot far higher level of transiency and travel. So I know mm -hmm. in the world of design thinking, many of the practitioners have very colorful pasts. Yeah. Everything from being in the circus to traveling abroad for years at a time. But it's one of those things that we design exercises for to try to get people to start thinking in new ways that, um, and our hope is that the leaders of tomorrow are actually valuing those qualities more and more because that's where we think the real value is, is to be found. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering for your own hiring practices, is that something you're always on the lookout for? Yeah, the unusual on the resume, then something that indicates kind of nimble thinking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, system thinking is you know, kind of one term, you know, that is used. But the ability, you know, when I see an, you know, a, um, I've looked at a lot of, sorry, we're in a, a good size law department. Um, and when I looked at thousands and thousands of lawyer resumes, you know, top law school, you know, big firm, big in-house counsel experience, right? And it's kind of, they didn't really kind of make it to me unless they had all those things. And now you're in this rarefied top 1% of the top 1% of lawyers. And mm -hmm. how do you distinguish yourself? You know, the point is, how do you, how do you put on something that's relevant? So for me, sometimes it's education, that lawyer, who then got an MBA, or that lawyer who went to an art design school, mm -hmm. right? That Those indicates are all kind of markers that like, yeah. oh, okay, there might be something else you going on. You got a left there. and a right brain. There's a lot yeah. of different terms, whether it's a left and a right brain thinker or you know, interdisciplinary. Just, just because you know, as a lawyer, you know, you're a business advisor, but at core, you're a problem solver, which means you need to be a nimble thinker. Mm -hmm. And you, and when you're in house, so I was in big firms and a, a lot of time in house. Especially when you're in house, you're a pro you're a business problem solver. I always would kid with my clients in house. It's, you know, if there's a purely legal problem, there's no problem because if it's a purely legal problem <laughs> without a business impact, why is it? Why you're I'm, we're expensive resources? Why is that in front of it? If it's a purely legal and doesn't have a business impact, it is not a problem for the business. Mm -hmm. so there's no such thing as a purely legal problem. If it is, you know, dismiss it if it, unless it has a business impact. 
you've got to be able to make that connection from I got a problem with this contract or I got a problem with this liability. How does that actually impact the business in a meaningful way to make it make sense to deploy these very expensive lawyer resources against it? So it's that nimble thinking and be able to come at the problem from multiple different perspectives. Again, whether it's you kind know, of art school and lawyer or it's just you're looking for that kind of being able to look at the problem really close. We talked about this kind of going down the rabbit hole really close on a particular issue and then having the self-discipline to pull yourself back out of the rabbit hole, go left and go down that next rabbit hole. The hard part there is not going down either rabbit hole, it's pulling yourself back out when you're down it and recognizing that you're down the rabbit hole. That's the hard part. Going in and out and looking at the big picture and seeing the relevance of that rabbit hole versus the next one versus the yeah. next one and picking the right ones to go down. Um, a lot of what you're talking about it sounds like you're, you're looking for a specialist or some people call it a generalist or some people call it a T-shaped person. But um, I'm curious your thoughts of where people are going in terms of career paths. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people are... You talked about the design thinking, which is slightly its its own kind of animal animal in terms of who goes down that path. But the vast majority, especially the the technology driven organizations, are looking for the programmer, very specific task oriented people. Where you sound like you're you're looking for at least multi purpose Swiss Army knife peoples. Yeah, it, it depends on what I'm interviewing for. If I'm really interviewing for an individual contributor that's going to solve this very discrete problem and, there are, and that's a very important function, yeah. that's fine. If I'm interviewing for leaders, which I tend to do mm -hmm. given my background, then yeah, I am looking for somebody who started out as an individual contributor and it, and it has grown or shows a willingness or propensity to grow beyond that. So... And the, the propensity to grow and willingness, that's the important piece. You know, it's so funny. I was sitting with a, a colleague who's working on a concept for a new venture capital fund. And, uh, you know, we were on a coffee break from our meeting, and she was talking about, gosh, I just, I, she runs, she runs a law firm. She's trying to hire a new lawyer, and she's like, I, I want this person that knows this thing that can address this client problem. And I said, and she's like, I'm just not seeing it on the resume. And my advice to her was, Stop looking for that, that they already have it. Start looking for people that you think are willing to learn it. Because if they're lawyers, they're already highly educated and can train themselves in new things. And it's, yeah. again, my point is, you know, when I'm, I'm not always looking for the person that's already where I want them to be, that's great if you can get that. But often you have to interview for the people who can become that thing you want them to be. You're looking for the raw talent. Yeah. The, the component pieces, You're like, are they int uh, yep. intellectual? Are they, have they learned new skills very rapidly in the past? Mm -hmm. Different signs that tell you that, yes, this person can easily learn this and will excel across a wide variety of, exactly. of uh, situations I put in. Right. Yeah. There's a book out, and I'm going to totally space on the name, but the, it's the basic premise. It's a, it's a bestseller right now. That, uh, saying that the generalist will be the most resilient worker in the future and that mm -hmm. the current conversation around hiring is that you're supposed to be highly technical. So mm -hmm. somebody who, for instance, um, focuses, on, focuses on being a full-stack developer in Python. Great, but in 15 years, where is that going to leave you when AI is doing your job mm -hmm. or 
machine learning is able to take over. So um, it's a huge conversation that this, this role of the generalist has been really neglected, but in this upcoming future of rapid change, mm -hmm. of which you know, we're gonna talk more about in the future, but nobody really has an idea of really how this is going to look. Yeah. But this skill set of being nimble, it's a, we call it the soft skills. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the most difficult to quantify, but really where real value gets derived from. It just doesn't tend to sit on a spreadsheet so well. Yeah. Everybody starts, you know, at the beginning of their career, focused on a really specific thing. So I wouldn't become discouraged that, you know, that's where you are in your career or you've been stuck in the same place for five years or 10 years. You can always change, right? You just have mm -hmm. the awareness mm -hmm. of where you want to go. You have to understand where you are first and then understand where you want to go. So I would agree, you know, the generalist is what you're looking for. I'm looking for in a leader. Um, but if I'm hiring kind of early, you know, kind of the, at the younger end of the organization, you know, folks, individual contributors, I am still looking for folks who can, I think, can grow into that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you want people to stay with the company, right? Just from a business perspective, the cost of recruiting new employees and onboarding them is very high. I think, you know, I if somebody could, I don't know, I was about to say if somebody could stay someone 15 years, they'd probably be happier. I don't know. It's an individual kind of question. But, yeah, that nimbleness of thinking, you know, ultimately your leader needs to be, you know, more of a generalist. Um, but I'd say kind of if I kind of peel that issue back, it's that ability, intellectual curiosity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing I can say that I'm always looking for, it, it might show up in the strangest way in an interview or on resume it's that intellectual curiosity the the ability to have your eyes open wide enough to go well that's interesting i wonder why that i wouldn't take that for granted and i've i've seen folks that don't have that it's very hard to train that in mm -hmm. um, some people develop it begrudgingly um, and some people are naturally born to ask the why but the i think the you know some of the better leaders are those lifelong learners who approach it with humility Right, mm -hmm. because when you ask why, you have to start with the assumption you don't know the answer. Right, otherwise, why you're asking, and that takes some humility. Right, yeah. and mm -hmm. not every leader yeah. has that. We always this is a leadership conversation. Ultimately, we always we're always fielding questions about how do you create these company cultures that work? How do you create employee engagement when sixty-eight to seventy percent of employees are not engaged at work? And the unfortunate truth is that it's always coming down to, is your leadership authentically engaged? Do they actually see this as a problem? Or are they just confident that business as usual is going to suffice? Mm -hmm. And we deal with a lot of friends and colleagues of ours who they really do want to start doing some of these more uh, engaged innovation attempts. Or how do I uh, create the kind of environment for my employees? But they don't have the say-so. So one of the, the big factors we have out there is how do we engage leaders in organizations to take this on when it might not seem uh, expedient or, or just easy to do? Because some of this work is hard work. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's conversations you've been having with other leaders about this or do we just count ourselves lucky if you have a boss that gets it and maybe in the future they'll win the talent war. Yeah. It's that whole question, culture, innovation, you know, kind of didn't come from a very, you know, 
global. I started a startup and then ended up, woke up one day, we're 43,000 people, and now I'm back in a company of nine, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the last piece was very purposeful. The, the you know, starting at a small company, waking up at 43,000, it just it was like kind of, you know, very happened very gradually, and I actually made a lot of it happen, but didn't really understand the implications of it. Um, I, I think humility is important in the leader. Um, how do you, I think as a CEO, the pentultimate kind of leader of the organization, I think it definitely has to come from the top. If I talk about how do you inject innovation in an, in an existing business, right? Um, there's, you know, kind of the playbook and, um, but one of the things that is essential is the, the, the CEO has to believe in it. Otherwise, it just becomes another corporate initiative that everybody kind of goes through the motions and acts like you know, they're going to do something, but they're not. They have to, you have to feel like you're being held accountable. We had a little kind of offline conversation around um, innovation. If you have an innovation initiative, how do you, what is success? How do you define success for an innovation initiative, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, I kind of led some of the innovation efforts at a very a large global company. And, you know, we were very financially minded because that's the skill set that got the company to where it was. But when you have an innovation initiative, often the value of that initiative has will never show up in numbers that you could isolate and identify and use those as KPIs, as indicators of success. So sometimes, I think the most essential piece of innovation is to define whatever the initiative is, what is an indicator of success? Because it usually, if it's one of the first ones you do in an organization, it'll have nothing to do with numbers. Mm-hmm. What, and that's the very hard piece. How do you measure success and in innovation? What if you just start, if the conversation, if the idea of innovation, the idea of disruption, the idea of doing something new, and the ideal of, of it being a bit of a failure becomes okay to talk about, that may well be enough success for that initiative, especially the early stage ones. Just if you get through initiative and it fails, which some will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, and you should help yeah. that. And if it fails, the important part is not that did it fail. The important part is what is the follow-on conversation around it? What is the organizational learning around that failure? If it's, well, that was a failure, and that's where the conversation stops, you've got a problem. Sure. What you really want is, wow, through that failure, we learned this. And those are not a lot of extra words at the end, but to me, if if an early stage innovation for a mature company, if that's the conversation, that's a win. That's a win for that worth every bit of effort because that is so hard to achieve in a big organization. And it's 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 even more crucial. I find that it's 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 the process of getting it to the failure, you know, or success. Mm-hmm. You're going to weed some out, but it's identifying those failures as quickly and as as fast as possible to be able to pivot or, or learn from them yeah. to, to build upon and, and come up with the next one. So the first, like you said, the first KPI might be, is it aligned with our brand? Is it delivering broadband to rural and, and um, uh, tribe nations? Like, is it, that's the only metric. Right. 
Is it achieving that? We can move forward with it. If it's not, yeah. it's failed. And I'd add to that. Yeah. Is it, does it make business sense for our mm -hmm. other stakeholders as well? Sure, right? yeah. Because when one empowers the other. Yeah, so you're going to have maybe like three very basic criteria that are going to be aligned at a very top level to even consider the idea of moving forward with any kind of idea that comes from your organization. And then the next stage might be a little bit more granular, a little bit more granular, and you're eventually going to get down to a very specific it's going to hit these numbers. It will be a success if these variables come out the way we predict. Right. But it's a whole it's a whole process. Right. Um, I think that's really important for people to understand that right. it's it's not just here's an idea. Let's launch it. Let's let's right. align it correctly, and then get there as fastly uh, fast as possible, yeah, and then learn from the failures and pivots that are along the way. Right. It, it could well be kind of in in, in my example that. That conversation that, yes, it failed, and look, look what we learned from this. Think of the messaging out of that. It's okay to fail, mm -hmm. and they didn't yep. lose their job, and we're still talking about it. We didn't bury the problem, right, mm -hmm. like we do with a lot of failures. And look what we learned about it. Now, actually, you're thinking forward rather than backwards. Yes. If, like I said, there's, it's not just that statement. It's now you've kind of planted the seed somewhere deep in the culture that if you, if you kind of care for that seed, it will grow and lead to a lot of good things in your in your business. Again, we're talking about kind of mature businesses, you know, which, you know, the wonderful thing about our capitalist economy is um, when you have highly skilled organizations that are very efficient, I mean, the capital system tends to locate where the weak points are and then exploit them. Um, and that's just kind of the nature of the way our financial system here works and, you know, kind of at least in kind of United States, North America. Um, so, you know, just you know, kind of the thing that's worked for us in the past will work for us in the future. There's an inherent weakness in that. And so if you can insert that, look forward, assume things are going to change um, and actually make those, try to take control of those changes a little bit, you know, that's, that's a success for that innovation initiative. Well, and that's, and that's where we look at the bigger, the bigger value, the value that doesn't, might not translate to a, to a spreadsheet, but is, Am I actually able to engage my teams in becoming comfortable with the process of innovation? Mm -hmm. And like you say, if you can actually start to instill that we actually encourage new looking, we encourage failure, you're not going to lose your job. When people start to actually go through that process, they become at home with the process of looking, right. uh, th doing things that might not seem, uh, you know, I might not be sitting in front of my computer and looking like I'm working real hard. I'm actually going to do some of the things that prompt the creative process to actually go discover a new idea. And as leaders, we're always working with them to, well, how do you create pathways so that people can actually do that? Because if it's a leader speaking to their employees from the top down, most people are left with, my job is to execute on those orders or those KPIs that have been assigned, rather than how do leaders in an organization empower their people to look, discover, iterate, and actually be able to lower the uh, time for those feedback loops where feedback is getting up to the upper levels. Mm -hmm. So some of the work we're doing is, well, how do you shorten that loop? How do you actually get people uh, inside the conditions where they can communicate safely, mm -hmm. where they can dissolve the barriers to new thinking? And if leaders aren't creating that, those structures and pathways, it's relatively hard for a company to suddenly become nimble and agile and pivot in a time when maybe that business model just got 
eclipsed by some new technology. Right. That, you put your finger on one of the harder questions is, you know, success often comes with, with scale, right? Um, whether you know, you're kind of one company buying another in horizontal scale, which is doing the same thing just on a broader basis, or you know, kind of vertical scale, kind of the supplier buying the customer, vice versa, you know, kind of vertical integration. It's a bigger organization, and they're people, and people have just so much communication capacity back and forth, and if you're up to six and seven levels, how do you, to your point, how do you get communication from level seven to level one in any meaningful way? Right, you're, something happens. I think somewhere around an organization, it's more around eighty to a hundred people. Yeah, yeah, that's my experience. Um, that's why I like my business because I don't think it ever gets there, um, even though it gets very scaled um, in capital and, and impact. But it, you know, you get to a certain size, and there's layers, and there have to be layers for control and focus, especially for a public company and have accountability to shareholders. How do you keep information flowing? Is it the use of Slack over email? Is it social media, internal social media sites? I think it's all of those things. Um, The hardest part, the the real answer is a culture of openness, and that's Mm -hmm. the hardest to both define and implement. And it has to come again from the very top. It has to I think you you effectuate it, maintain it by your hiring standards, by talking about the values, having that communication and openness core to the values, talk about the values again, talk about them again, and talk about them a third time. I had a very good boss in my last job, and you know, at the end of every session, he would you know talk about, okay, and these are our values. And then most of the time, he would give an example of, okay, here's someone, he wouldn't use names, this is something that happened, you know, he'd generalize it, and this is what somebody did, and here's why it doesn't align with our values. And it would make people a little bit uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but it gave context rather than just using the words around the values and saying, here's what happened to you know somebody. Here's some choices they made. Here's how it wasn't really aligned with what we care about. That was his method. I've not seen it used yeah. together. It worked very well for him, and it was very authentic to him, but... It, it's it's constantly reinforcing. If you want somebody to hear something, tell them three ways, three times, right? Yep. It's a good rule of thumb. And by the way, there's another side of this too. When we're talking about, you know, it's so easy to use this word innovation and we're always rolling our eyes amongst ourselves because it's such a broad, mm-hmm. overused term. But the, the way that acknowledgement inside an organization can be incredibly powerful in highlighting the values and encouraging the values because one of the biggest things we've come across is the lack of trust or the little fiefdoms that naturally pop up in organizations. So people will come to this conversation. I mean, everything we're saying sounds great. I don't think there's anybody who wouldn't intrinsically agree with us, but that's often at odds with the normal day-to-day working reality of companies where people are really grappling with, you know, my manager isn't open to new ideas. So or even, I would say, even building on that is not so much your manager, but my department's KPI is measured on the, 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 the margin that we're building this product to mm-hmm. versus the value of making a, you know, a, a better world or making more environmental impact that might be part of our core values but are not how I'm being measured on my day-to-day performance and what my bonus right. will be based on. Right. So, yeah, so it's... Um, you know, people will act as you incent them. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
having you know sat through I can't tell you how many compensation committee meetings in my time, and um, you know I would listen to stories you know either during the meeting or during breaks, and you're like, oh the you know the sales team learned how to you know they did this you know and they in, ended up how to game the system or you know that was sometimes their perception or gosh, they figured out a way to make, you know, kind of a million dollars when they only expected them to make 200. You know, look at these kind of bad salespeople or abusive people. I'm like, well, we designed the system. Mm-hmm. We created the incentive for them to do that. There is an amount of accountability where you can go beyond and, you know, kind of fraud and, you know, kind of sure, abuse. Yeah. But, you know, when you're you know, trying to hold people accountable for what happened under a compensation plan, you need to walk in it with some humility and say, who designed the plan? People followed the plan. They did the thing you asked them to do because that you wrote the plan, you created the incentives, and they did it. Now whose fault is it that you didn't get the outcome you wanted? And it's it's hard. Boy, these, it's, these mm-hmm. com- com- yeah. it's the compensation plan. People act as they're incented and be careful what you incent because it might not be the, th- it usually isn't, often isn't the thing you think you're incenting. Yeah. Well, and that's actually, you know, huge areas of opportunity when we talk about co-creation. And there's more and more of a pull to actually include members of the organization in creating these KPIs. And I know we've been doing a bunch of work around OKRs and actually measuring what matters. And it's an, it's an incredibly powerful engagement tool to engage your employees. Like, if we say that this is what we stand for, how would we measure that? What would be some of our business-related outcomes and if we are also committed to having a positive social impact or we want to be more sustainable, great. What actually fits into our business model that would be an ongoing metric that we could measure mm-hmm. that would really tell us if we're fulfilling on that? Yeah. And instead of waiting for someone to be told up here that there's an actual way to engage people in the process of arriving at those that then puts it over in their hands, like this is their creation. And you're also going to innovate and get better uh, metrics to go by that's going to be owned by the entire organization. So there's some really fun things we've been playing around with in that domain that literally puts the kind of onus and the ownership of the company's future in the employees' hands, really treating them like the big people that they are, and then they kind of have, they have ownership and buy-in to the very thing that they helped co-create. Yeah, we saw one example. We had a new leader come in in our technical section, and. Uh, um, a very senior leader in our, in our technical areas, and he came in from the outside of the organization, which was unusual and very forward-thinking of our leaders. And one of the first things he did, he ran kind of a, an internal shark tank amongst his technical mm-hmm. group, and people really leaned into it. I mean, they went in there, up there on stage, and they pitched their ideas, and there was a guarantee. Whichever one we choose is going to get, you know, I can't remember how much it was, a couple hundred thousand. It was a meaningful amount to go and try to make that real. And... It was, you know, kind of put your money where your mouth is. If you, you know, you've got the time and energy of making space, you know, in a, at a company-wide conference for that. And you had the money that you'd spend on it. It's the sport down the road. I can't remember what happened to the, the actual initiative. But that really, it signals in a very real, tangible way that we're going to think of new ideas differently. We're going to support it from the very bottom, potentially very bottom of the organization up. Um, there's a commitment to doing things differently, and, you know, and it was a lot of keeping. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, and it, there's a contextual shift too, which is there's so many people. I mean, the number of challenges facing leaders today is 
I don't know if it's been more difficult in the past, but there's quite a few challenges. It's very easy to look at one's employees as the challenge or the problem mm -hmm. versus that kind of thinking, which is, oh, no, no, there's locked up potential in these people. How would we tap it? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean squeezing people harder. It doesn't mean hovering over them to meet their, meet their metrics. But really, how can we actually access this latent potential and this willingness to want to contribute and this willingness to or the, the desire to want to be creative on the job. So tapping that, again, can be huge fun and who knows, even create the next revenue stream that's going to sustain your business for the next number of years. Right, right. It, 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 we were just talking about, you know, you, having been really involved in the innovation function in a big organization, you know, you're like, you know, we're corporate strategy and innovation and we come up with business plans and we create these spreadsheets and then we go to the business units and we try to get support from them and build out what the revenue and the expenses and right that's one way to do it right that's a new product or uh, we want to move into you know this different business buy data centers and move into the data center business versus the network mm -hmm. business and the M&A team kicks in and evaluates opportunities and executes and we integrate them or you know we can do what we just talked about which is kind of in take that insight these are the people that know our business best and i know in a big enough organization there are people who are thinking you know, daily, gosh, if I could just do this one different thing. I know that in any organization of any size, there are those people. How do you give them a platform to have their voice heard? Because they're not working up in corporate strategy, doing the M&A, doing the, yeah. you know, they're not on the teams I was on. They're down in the bottom, and they're, they understand the real problems and maybe the real corners of value that the company isn't looking for. So not that the corporate strategy and all that isn't, isn't, essential because you can operate at scale right. but then the people they usually don't understand the business as well as the people deep in the organization and see the pockets of value sure. so you've got to do well, that's both. your knowledge it's not base a one or another. Yeah. that's well, your knowledge base too if you can keep those people there and extend their time in your company yeah. for another three or four years that's a very difficult value to quantify but essential i mean if you're turning over positions every two years and whatever it takes to onboard people, to even headhunt them, get them online, versus, oh no, this person's been here seven years. If you can raise your average retention level, that's that much more internal uh, knowledge base being carried that much further. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see if there's a way to even quantify that, but that mm -hmm. would be, that would eclipse many other initiatives that a company would take on if they could impact that one metric. Right. Well, I think there's that metric, but there's also creating those pathways for anybody in the organization to pitch or bring an idea to people that can make a decision and drive drive that and drive that idea and build a team around it to support it. You know, I've worked in workshops where the the idea in a shark tank at the end of the, the workshop there was a shark tank and the idea that was picked, the original idea came from the admin. Um, and I don't want to say, I don't make, say that in a, a negative connotation. It, it's, she had a really amazing idea and the team around her saw it and was like, let's, let's gather around, let's build on it. And they couldn't have, she couldn't have done it by herself. She couldn't have done it. Not one person on that team could have done it. It was somebody from the strategy team was on her team. Somebody from engineering was on her team. Somebody from uh, you name it, department was on there and, and they came together and supported her. And, the, and that was the idea that got funded. Yeah. And it's, it's creating those, those, those atmosphere that it can be done and not only just 
feed that idea up, but to feed the idea to get support. It's interesting. What, what, one of the thoughts that occurs to me, and I never actually, I'm not sure I ever actually did it. You know, you've got kind of innovation going up with the corporate strategy team, assuming you're big enough to have something, but there's somebody that's looking at M&A of any sizable organization, whether internally, externally, and then you've got kind of people with the really interesting ideas at the bottom. How do you get them connected? Remember we were talking earlier, how do you keep communications flowing? You know, it's really interesting if um, just, I didn't try it, but, you know, if you were to set up kind of an anonymous idea box, remember you the wooden yeah, box yeah. with a slot, you can do that, of course, virtually, and, you know, anonymize it, and so anybody can put idea boxes in for the innovation team. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and there's, you know, we were, t was it last, the last uh, conversation with Tim we were having offline is we were, we were even playing around with the ideas that in the future of work, there's going, we already have all these huge generational differences already existing within a workplace, or you have people who are in their 50s who might not be as well used in lower level positions, but they do have an experience level that there's probably going to be room for creating new kinds of roles, and some of these are intermediary roles with people who actually excel in interdisciplinary thinking to be making those connections across the silos of an organization. Mm -hmm. I think there is room in the future that there's gonna be some kind of hybridized teams that actually that's their function, because unless you strategize to actually connect those dots, they don't happen spontaneously. And so I, I, I've been playing around with some of those ideas of like, well, we take our hierarchical structures for granted. I think there's actually a, a completely different way to think about this. And it might be really reimagining some of our organizational structures and some of these really simple things that we could add in that if uh, you know, free moving teams are able to operate throughout companies, they, they'd be discovering potential that nobody tapped yet. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered a few organizations that actually do um, do what you're, Dan, you're explaining is that they're trying to tap into the organization and create essentially, you know, uh, that box mm -hmm. that employees can put it down. Actually, I spoke with a few few months ago, um, Cleveland Clinic's Innovation Lab. They do, they have a similar mm -hmm. structure-ish, you know, um, and I and I know of a few others that. that have a very innovative, you know, um, case story around how they do that. Um, it'll be interesting as you start to see that spread to a variety of other types of organizations. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as a, it would, I think there's a lot of knowledge out there and a lot of experience that's it's being, it's not being tapped into. Right. Sure. Guys, I hate to wrap this up here, but you have a flight to catch. I yeah. do, I do. And we need to get you out the door here. So, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time out this afternoon to be with us. Absolutely. You've provided so much insight and, and uh, uh, great knowledge to this, and we look forward to having you back. All right, thank you for inviting me. Right. Have Thanks a, a lot. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.